We're going to continue in our series called Heaven on Earth. And we're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. And the big idea of this is this. Heaven on earth is Jesus' church. When we say heaven on earth, we typically mean a state of comfort and pleasure that's just so amazing we wish it would last forever. And heaven's going to be pretty amazing when we get there and things are all done. But in this life right now, we live on a broken earth and heaven is invading earth through the gospel and through the Holy Spirit and through the preaching about Jesus Christ. But where heaven is, is the church. Heaven is in believers, and when we get together, that's heaven on earth. And we'll get there soon, but Paul actually says, or no, we were there last week where Paul actually says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Spirit of God? And in Israel, the temple was the place where God's presence dwelled on earth. So, congratulations, you are heaven on earth, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And I know right now your, your brain's hurt with trying to process that, like, what, me? No, you don't, what, you weren't here all week, but, and my thoughts, even now, and the worship time, and the kids, and this can't be true. It is true. This is the gospel. That through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sins, and God comes down in the Holy Spirit and lives within us and is with us as we gather together. Heaven isn't somewhere you want to be unless God is there. Okay? We think of heaven. I had a high school teacher once. He says, I can't wait to go to heaven. It's a hockey rink surrounded by 18 holes of golf. If God's not there helping you have a good golf game, that's just hell. Right? Every game, your handicap gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Heaven is where God is. And God is here. And God is with you. And God is in you. You're heaven on earth, and we're heaven on earth. And the reason I love this book, 1 Corinthians, is because it was Paul's church, the Apostle Paul's church, that least believed or applied that truth. And so you get all kinds of corrections from the apostle, him just waving his arms like this from, he's a few hundred, maybe thousand miles away, and he's going, you guys, you don't know who you are. Stop it. You're heaven on earth. It's time to live like it. So this is the big idea, and we're going to get here, but I promised every time we do one of these messages, we're going to start by reading a portion of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And this time... Yes. We're going to apply it for parents. If you are here last week, we added in love for kids last week. Um, This is the thing about love. Everybody feels like a loving person until you have a real human being in front of you. Right? Somebody said once that a liberal is somebody who loves all of mankind but can't stand the man actually standing in front of him. Right? And when we're doing our Bible time and the coffee is just right and you're in one of your favorite passages, we are loving people. And then the other people in our house wake up, and what happened? Maybe it's just me. And so I'm adding in these little brackets to actually apply this to people we actually know. 
so that we can learn to love the people we actually live with. So we're going to read this together if you want. You're not forced to. You can just listen along if you want. But we're going to read 1 Corinthians 1 through till we're done. 3, 2, 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love for parents, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love for parents, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love for parents, I gain nothing." Love for parents is patient and kind. Love for parents does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love for parents bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love for parents never ends. Amen. Wow. Parents, go easy on your kids right now. Those elbows could start flying if you wanted to. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, we need you. Father, the truth is is that in your wisdom, you told us things are true that we rarely feel and sometimes don't experience a lot. And Father, would you help us to grow in faith until our lives become more and more like what you say is the actual truth about us? Father, would you grow a people here and in Steinbeck in Manitoba and Canada who are tough as nails in faith in Jesus Christ and unmoved from believing the truth of your word? And I pray, Lord, that we would do what, what Paul says and that we would believe that our faith needs to express itself through love. And that because of this, you would make us that miracle of tough people who overflow with amazing love. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. So this morning, I want to be speaking out of the end of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, Just so you know, I've given myself permission to jump around in the book a little bit, so if all of a sudden I'm back in chapter 2, we'll be okay. But today we're going to do chapter 4, which might seem like jumping ahead. And we're going to look at Paul talking about himself being a father in the church. So if technology serves me well, this should work. So my subtitle for the message today is being fathered by faith. And I'm just going to read it. You don't have to read it along. Uh, This is my main passage. And what's going on here, you might remember, is Paul has planted this church. He was there for at least a year and a half. And he built up this church and then he went away. And now he's having this letter correspondence with the church. But he found out from some of the the delivery people that the church has broken up into factions. Some people saying, I follow Paul, and some people saying, I follow this guy named Apollos, who is a younger teacher who is touring the churches. Other people saying that I follow Peter, and then the Bible scholar types who always know how to be right join into the phrase saying, well, I follow Christ, because that's the right answer. They were in Sunday school. And so the church is dividing itself after he left, And Paul knows that part of the reason these factions are are happening is because there's a bunch of people who don't like him. 
And even though he planted this church and he's the apostle of this church, there's a bunch of people who don't like him, and so they're saying that they're going to follow somebody else as a way of rejecting Paul. And so he is wrestling with them for the first four chapters of this letter, and he's kind of wrapping up this discussion by talking about his fatherhood. And he says to them, "Um, I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my way in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And the big idea I want to share with us that I'm going to hopefully do a good job of explaining is this. As God is building heaven on earth in his church, he is going to be raising up godly fathers to reflect God the Father. That's his mission. Heaven on earth requires godly fathers to demonstrate to the church and the world what God the Father looks like. That's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, "I, I didn't just come and just hand out a tract and disappear. I came and I became your dad through the gospel. When I told you about Jesus and you were born again, the Father God made me your father through faith in Jesus Christ so that I could father you in the faith. And what he's sensing here is they don't like that reality. They don't want a dad. They want guides. And so they're doing what they can to orphan themselves. And ultimately, Paul knows the issue here is not him. It's actually they don't want the father of Jesus Christ in charge of their life. So they don't want the father that Jesus Christ gave them to be in charge of their life. And so they're just going to try to get rid of Paul. And Paul's like, if you get rid of me, you're getting rid of how God is saving the world. When God first made the world... He made Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, still just calling them the man and the woman. And I want to just kind of point out that fatherhood and fathers really is God's desire to have men who become fathers. And there's different kinds of fatherhood. There's the physical kind with actual babies, and then there's um, a kind of spiritual kind like Paul is doing, because Paul, as far as we know, was never married and never had any kids, but he was one of the greatest fathers that ever lived. There's fathers of nations, there's fathers of businesses, there's fathers of churches, there's all different kinds of fathers. But this is God's idea, and I just want to kind of point it out to you. So in the first chapter of Genesis, where we get the record of God making everything, which is a short record, so everything's important in here, it says this, Starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And here's the. So God's just made the man and the woman, and it says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over all the stuff. Okay, so God makes a man and a woman, and the very first thing he says for for the man to do is to become a father. He says, Adam, 
make a baby, and start a business so you can provide for the baby and its mom. Adam, become a father and start a farm so you can take care of your wife and the kids. This is the first thing God told anyone to do was to become a father. Hello? Yeah. So sometimes preachers, yeah, thank you. Timmy's over there rocking it, over there, just like your dad. Come on, do it. Yeah. He's like, listen, people. See, God sent this kid all the way from Bulgaria just to give the, the amen. You're doing a great job. Sometimes preachers can um, overemphasize things, but when I say the first thing that anyone was told to do, it was to be a father, that is literally true. And a woman to become a mother. But seriously, guys. So it's a big deal. And then the fall happened. And one of the consequences of the fall was that every aspect of parenting became damaged, including the relationship between husband and wife and father and child. And uh, one of the painful things about the Old Testament is how rare there are any instances of really great fathering. Uh, The story of the Old Testament really is a lot of not great fathering happening. Abraham was okay but he had some major failures. Jacob was a mess. Moses almost got his sons killed by not circumcising them. David. And at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, this this is the prophecy that kind of ends the canon at least in how we have it organized, God says this. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of destruction. And this is a prophecy about the New Testament times, and we know that because in Luke chapter 1, verse 16... Just follow with me for a bit. I'm making a point. Sometimes you might think that I don't do that enough, but I really am working on something here. In Luke chapter 1, verse 16, a prophecy about John the Baptist, the angel speaking to John the Baptist's dad says this about John the Baptist. It says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah, listen to this, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So why am I pointing this out? I'm pointing this out because the Bible prophesied that part of the new covenant would be the creation of fathers whose hearts are for the children. 
not like what we normally do. Amen? Sometimes? This is a New Testament thing. This is part of heaven coming down to earth. That God the Father would say, in my Son Jesus, I am going to create the fatherhood that reflects me as God the Father, and I am going to create fathers who really do have hearts for their children. And I've got other verses talking about how God did this. However, I don't think it takes a lot of research or even looking around to know that fatherhood is not in great shape these days. One way and another, fatherhood is not in great shape this day, these days, and part of it is because real fatherhood, the kind that God is building in his church, is something we don't want in our culture, Okay? So you might remember for the last few weeks we've been talking about the impact of the philosophy of existentialism and I just lost everybody, but just come on back. Don't just go to the Seinfeld reruns in your brain. Come on back. We've been talking about this worldview that I'm calling meism. And this is the big idea as a reminder. Around the 30s and 20s, people with the big brains were saying, we believe there is no God. There is no God. There's no God the Father. But there is no God, and so there really is no meaning in life. We're just chemicals that do things by accident. Anybody? There's no such thing as right and wrong. There's no such thing as you having a real purpose and a real meaning that endures beyond your ability to fight and defend yourself and stay alive. But because that's discouraging and because nobody likes to live like that, we have to find meaning somewhere. And so the existentialists said this. They said, you have to do it. And they tried to make it sound noble. You get to do it. You get to be strong. You get to be courageous. You get to decide for yourself what you are and who you are and what's right for you and what's wrong for you and what your past was and what your destiny is and how you will accomplish it. Stand up. Don't be like one of those weak Christians that goes to church to get told what to do each Sunday. Be a man. Be a woman. Determine your own destiny. Fight for what you want. Define who you are. Don't let anybody stop you from catching your dreams. That's existentialism. There is no God in heaven, they would say, confining you, restraining you. But at the same time, it means there's no God the Father in heaven loving you and saying, I knew you before you were born, and I know who you're supposed to be, and I'm going to make sure that we're together forever. All of that's gone. You're just some oxygen and some hydrogen and some carbon that... One day it blew up, and then the next day was you, and then you'll, it'll all be over, and it doesn't mean anything, and the redshift means that eventually the entire universe will just go to three degrees Celsius, and there won't be anything, and we'll all be dead. Which, again, isn't encouraging and doesn't help you get up in the morning. And so here's the other option. You decide who you are. And this has become kind of the meaning of life for us. The whole point of existing is me Decide, figuring out who I am by kind of looking inside to my desires and my feelings and then deciding that's who I am, what I feel today is who I am, and then dreaming about how I could become better at who I am or dreaming about who I should be. And 
I get actually very confused trying to make it make sense logically, but that's part of the thing. I've decided it doesn't need to be logical. Just leave me alone and hand me a hamburger. And Okay. If you live in a world where you think the meaning of life is having the authority to decide who you are and what you are and what you're going to do, and this will make you happy, and at the same time, God is saying the meaning of life is being a child of a father who has authority over you, and part of being rescued from hell is to be gifted with godly fathers who have authority over you, and God defines you, and God describes you, and God decides, and that God will give you actual physical fathers to be his servants to do this thing, can you imagine there might be a bit of a conflict? And so God in heaven is saying, I'm going to bless you, by giving you godly fathers who have authority over your life to do good to you and also to resist you when you're doing evil. And we, soaked in meism, hear it as a curse. No, I'm going to be that kind of Christian that nobody's in authority over. I'm going to be that kind of Christian that nobody tells what to do. That is freedom. But God is saying... That's hell. Because heaven is the place where everybody does what the Father wants. That's why when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, this is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy. Make your kingdom come. Make your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is the place where everything submits to the Father's will. And our entire world says the meaning of life is to not have to, to submit to anybody's will. And this is the warfare of our culture. And this is why everybody's so uncomfortable right now. This is why people are starting to feel like they're being robbed right now. I'm being robbed. Because for a long time we were told that our safety and security would come from having the freedom to do whatever we want. But it really just makes us alone and offended and really sad. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to rescue us from being alone, from ever having to make any decision about what we are or who we are or what's right and wrong and what, what the future's going to be. Instead, we get gifted heaven on earth because he died on the cross to forgive us our sins and to make us the children of God again and to make us precious and treasured and wanted and to reveal to us that God's will is actually the best will and that nobody knows who you are except for the Father. You don't know who you are. Like, come on, let's get serious. We all look in the mirror and go, I have no idea where you came from. Anybody? You look in the mirror like, where did that face come from? That's not the same face I looked at last year. Where did this come from? This wasn't here when I was 15. We look in the mirror and like, I don't know you. And if we're honest, all the effort we've been trying to do to get the mirror do what we think we want is a lot of failure. 
Anybody? Amen. And the gospel is, Jesus' dad knows exactly who you are. He's known who you are since before he even made the first person, and he is letting you know he wants you by killing his son to get you. And Jesus rose up from the grave to have you. You don't even have to worry about who you are anymore. God's working on it. <laughs> who am I supposed to? Don't worry about that. Trust Jesus. God's got it covered. And the Bible tells us by the time God is done with us, all of his children are going to be reigning in glory, so shining bright with awesomeness that you couldn't even look at yourself in the mirror with your eyes you have right now. You're going to be the glorified children of God. Right now we're just like an acorn compared to the oak tree. You're never going to be who you really are in this life. This life is a process of killing the sin and becoming more like Jesus. And the best thing that will happen to us is dying because that's when we get to get rid of all the stuff we aren't for the last time. So it is good news. But it's a bit of a problem because part of us living this life that God wants where we actually experience his fatherhood is by giving us fathers. And we don't want them. There are a few things in life that will make you so infuriated as a good, godly man telling you no. Because he loves you. And that's an elder's job. Everyone's happy to have elders in a church as long as they're saying yes. Right? As long as they're making room in the budget for you to get to do what you want. Right? It's when they come down and say, I love you, and no... That's when people start changing churches. If you're hungry for food and you pray and somebody drops off a meal at your house, you know God did it. Nobody sits and goes, God, feed me, I'm hungry, but I don't want to have to eat. Do that thing like when Moses was on the mountaintop where he was just like 40 days with you and, and he came down and he was still so ripping strong he could take that idol and just crash it into little bits and smash those stones. Do that. We all know that if God's going to feed us he's going to use people to grow the food most times and, and actually give us food to eat. And we, need to, we, we are all happy to pray to experience the love of the Father, but He wants to do it by sending us fathers who love us. He wants to use His world and use His church to accomplish His goals. Amen? Look, I'm even stressed out. And I, I am a father, and this stresses me out. This whole idea of godly dads. Speaking of church reviews. (laughs) 
Why, why do things get so hard? One is, I don't, I don't think as a, a church culture we, we um, celebrate even the ambition to be a godly spiritual father, whether you have kids or not. Okay, I said it before, I'll say it again. The Apostle Paul was one of the best fathers who has ever lived. And as far as we know, he had this many kids. Because it's not about fertilization. It's about knowing the Father and accepting the responsibilities for people that the Father gives you. And being faithful to God and them in, in the character of God, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what it's about. So anybody can father, any man can father anything. I am talking about the men. Sorry, ladies, you're wonderful. Guess what? You have an entire country that is fighting for you. And the men only have the church that's going to stand and say, you're actually made to be a godly father. And I'm sorry that you live in this age. And we love you. I want all the women to do amazingly. But you know what? You won't do that great without godly fathers in your life. Because God has not made his church or the universe to work like that. We keep trying to figure out how to fly airplanes with ignoring the law of gravity. And it just results in a lot of dead people. Somebody? Anybody? This week, the police found the corpses of two murderers in our province. And I will buy everybody in this room lunch if it turns out either one of them had a godly father who spent a lot of time with them or a Christian coach who was really invested in them. Or it could be just like every other story that they were somewhat neglected from a probably a broken home and were raised by video games for the last five or six years. And it's not the video games. They did not know God the Father. And so they became like the other father option, which is having Satan as your father. Okay, guys. Let's talk to the guys. One of the main reasons there aren't a lot of godly fathers is because we don't want to do it. There's almost nothing more frightening than knowing the responsibilities that come along with being a godly father. No matter what color pants you were wearing when you walk into the room, your trousers are brown by the time you, you feel the weight of the responsibility of a godly father. And you know you're going to fail. And you know you're going to fail, so you don't try. And, and men tend to blow it in two different ways, as demonstrated by Scripture. The first way is uh, we abdicate responsibility. So... Just read the entire Old Testament. It's pretty much there. But think about the story. Do you remember when with David and his son Amnon? And Amnon had a crush on his half-sister. And because of that, his friend taught him, told him how to trap her. And he abused her and then sent her away. And she went crying out into the rest of the palace. And David heard about this event that happened in his family. And he got angry. But you know what he did about it? And because he did nothing about it, his other son killed the first son and launched a civil war that led to tens of thousands of Israelites killing each other. It's really hard to be a godly father. And most of the time, you just don't want to do it. 
I remember in my own family, it wasn't a Christian family growing up, and I, I love my parents so much. Guys, you have no idea. I love them, and I love them, and I don't care what they were like. I just loved them. And you know, my dad passed away a couple years ago, and I'm just so grateful for the good stuff that, dad, or that God did do for me through my dad. But uh, I remember the worst Christmas we ever had. It was terrible. There was this really bad thing that was happening in my family. It was so bad, in fact, that I'm not even going to mention it. And we weren't talking about it as a family. And then somebody did something and the whole thing blew up. It blew up so bad. I had a fist fight with my brother that the dog decided to get involved in and was biting me in it. But like, you can just imagine uh, spending Christmas um, with mom trying to break up her older teenage boys having a I want to kill you fist fight in the living room. And uh, I remember two things about my dad at that time. And God bless him, and I'm not complaining, and God can't bless him, he's dead, but you know what I mean by that. Um, First of all, he just went off and started fixing a VCR. And then he went to work. And he had absolutely, like, this much involvement in working through the issue, and it never got worked through. It just got ignored and never dealt with. Because most guys feel absolutely unequipped to deal with actual sin in their realms of, of, of responsibility. And you just don't know what to do other than to check out or blank out or go away. The other thing that tends to happen is when men do feel the weight of responsibility, we tend to get somewhat selfish about it and then don't... you like deal with it in a godly way the other way. And I just think about King Saul. So King Saul was a father, and he was also the father of Israel for a while. God gave him both of those roles. But as he felt the weight of the fatherhood of kingship on him, he wasn't a king that like cared that much about other people doing well. And in fact, the more and more well that David did, the more insecure and jealous Saul became and started to deal with every single problem as seeing it as an attack on himself and was willing to murder and attack David to try to get rid of him because he, his whole fatherhood just turned into a big selfish thing and he tried to deal with everything through anger and aggression. And those tend to be the ways that dads do that. We become like control freaks or we become... Um, we just disappear. Now let's come back to 1 Corinthians. I love the Apostle Paul. He was neither of those things. He has this big issue in his church where people are having factions and nobody's talking to him about it. And he's like, guess what we're talking about today? Guess what the biggest thing in my letter I'm going to be talking about is? How you're really doing. Because I'm your dad in the gospel, and I have authority and power to help you get through this well. And so we're talking about this. Everybody sit down. And can you just imagine if Calvary Chapel, and we probably are, have all these secret problems that everybody knows about except for the pastors, and everybody knows about, and all of a sudden, it's like, this sermon series is just about these issues. You have so many people who are like angry and offended and feeling outed and feeling exposed. And Paul does not give a rip because he loves them and he's their dad. And we're talking about this because I am not letting you guys go down in a big ball of fire. Amen? 
And so, and this is his whole point. This is why he's saying, I'm your dad. That's why I'm, he wants to fight with them, to save them. And he even warns them later on, listen to this. He says, I will come to you soon if the Lord's will, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but of power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love with the spirit of gentleness? So he's dad. He's talking to them like dad. He's like, guys, I can come with a rod. I don't know if you've read my book. It's called Acts. Made this guy blind one time, you know, about that. Uh, so I'm not worried about God backing me up if I try to do stuff here. But my, my preference would be just for us to show up and have a great meal together and enjoy the Lord. The sad news is that by the second book of Corinthians, Paul isn't any more popular than the first one. But this is the deal. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't actually care what's going on in the rest of Canada. Men, you are all called to make it your greatest ambition to be godly fathers. In your family and in this church family and in your businesses and anywhere else, God will bless you with responsibility. To prayerfully accept that responsibility and to be willing to suffer and die to make other people richer. This is your life. And this, this is heaven on earth. For you and everybody else. So maybe pray, am I a runner or am I a blow-upper? How do you fall off the fence? Either way, guys, nobody is a godly father on their own. It is only a gift from God. Yes, you will fail. Probably weekly, maybe daily. Who cares? Who cares? Our country is dying without godly fathers. Our prime minister thinks the greatest gift he can give people is the power to kill their children. He is not a father. He is a little boy who's trying to buy people off in some kind of weirdo popularity contest. And sorry, I don't want to get political, but that is how the spiritual facts are working. This country needs dads or it's dead. And I'm talking to you. It's either going to be us or no one. So this is my recommendation. There are some great godly fathers at Calvary Chapel. If you want to connect with them, do it. Otherwise, if you feel like you've been somewhat orphaned from fatherhood in your life, Paul is now your dad. By the grace of Jesus Christ, as you're willing to receive it, the Apostle Paul is now your father. In the wisdom of God, he wanted half of the New Testament to be written by somebody who was weeping over his children saying, I love you as a father and I'm telling you the gospel. Because the Apostle Paul has the father's heart for the church. So from now on, men and women... Get in the New Testament and read his letters like it is your own father who has adopted you and talking to you as a beloved child. That's the point. That's the point of this passage. Because I believe Paul's gospel. Therefore, he is my spiritual dad too, among others. When Paul writes, that's my dad. How Paul deals with things, that's how I'm going to deal with things. 
What, what my dad values, that's what I'm going to value. I read this letter, I'm like, what am I going to think about speaking in tongues? Well, apparently my dad spoke in tongues more than most people he knew, so that must be a good thing, because my dad did it. What am I going to think about prophesying? It's a big mess. Yeah, but when my dad wanted to deal with prophetic mess in the church, he said, I wish all of you would prophesy more. You just do it loving each other. That's, if it's good enough for my dad, it's good enough for me. Anybody? He's, he's one of my dads. And he's one of your dads. And, and if you're like him, Paul said, if you're like me, you're actually like Jesus. Because Paul was willing to be beaten and almost killed and suffer every day of his life, thinking to himself, I want to suffer well so that other people will be like Jesus. Amen? This is always the test, okay? So you said, I don't believe in the fear of fatherhood. Okay, guys, if everybody you knew had to become just like you, and they could only be just like you, are you celebrating or are you terrified? I see some smiles, but that's it. Just stay low. The Apostle Paul went through all his churches saying, if you just lived like me, you'd be following Jesus. And that's what we're called to. So, let's pray. Then we'll worship the Lord. Father, I just want to declare afresh again, this has nothing to do with human beings in one sense. We are just hunks of mud that you breathed into. On the other hand, Lord, you made us your image. And you have a special call for men to desire to be fathers, to reflect your fatherhood. And Father, I pray you would do something so amazing in this generation throughout Canada. Father, we know that there's a, a father hunger in North America. We know there's a lack of fatherhood, especially showing up amongst our young men. But God, I pray that in just by grace, you would meet that need through your church. Father, I know Satan wants to get in there and own these young men's lives and all these young people's lives. God, by the grace and for the glory of Jesus, no, no, no. And Father, by grace and by the resurrection power of the Spirit of God, would all of us change our minds to work with you for how you want to bring heaven to earth so that we won't come to the throne room as a generation and say it only got worse while we lived but that by grace we could say you did something amazing in our days and every faith filled heart said amen